Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Episode 35 of The Bowery Boys, The British Invasion. Hey, it's The Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo editors personally visit and review the best budget hotels in Europe. Now with hotels in New York City. On the web at Eurocheapo.com. Hello there and welcome to The Bowery Boys. My name is Greg Young. And I'm Tom Myers. And we will be talking about the British invasion today. And no, my friends, that does not mean when the Beatles went to the Plaza Hotel and to... Oh. No, not, none of that. But no. that's what I did all my research on, Oh, Greg. my God. We're going to be completely, like, verklempt. Anyway, oh, no. but no, this no, is... No, 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 This no. is when the British invaded New York City in 1776. During the American Revolution, the start of America's independence, back when George Washington and the Continental Army weren't looking as legendary and iconic and the thing that we would read in history books, it would be quite a different group of people defending against British. And this is also the story of a young colony and a young city of Manhattan, New York, what it was like in the town at the time of the invasion, and what it would have been like to watch as the Continental Force got pushed back, back, back. Further back, back and further back. And back. We'll be visiting not only mainland New York, the cosmopolitan New York, which we, you'll find out about, but also the sort of wilderness of Brooklyn and how that plays into American independence now. And we'll also be mentioning a lot of places and people that still have le- leave an imprint here and in And many York. of them have names that uh, are ringing familiar today. Oh, that we still you still come across. I mean, their their influence and importance are still with us. So So get out your your battle maps because we're going to talk about some <laughs> some some major battles that took place in some rather benign areas today. Yes. Um, get out those drums and your fife and you know, we're going to celebrate American patriotism, maybe a darker shade of it because this is America's most happiest moments, but it is part of and one of one of New York's most important eras of history. We are going to the invasion. So the world that we're about to visit is a New York that is completely different than the one we have now. Tom, why don't you take us back to 1763, where Shall we're going to begin our journey. 
Right. Well, you know, you say it's completely different. I will argue that in 1763, New York was actually already cosmopolitan. Okay. And though small, it sort of felt like a metropolis because you had a very diverse mix of people. The population was made up of all manner of religions, uh, Protestants, Anglicans, Dutch Reformed, Lutherans, Quakers. There weren't very many Jews and Catholics because they had lost certain rights, so many of them had left. But still, you can imagine the different languages being spoken. And all of this in a town that had a population of just over about 20,000 in 1763. 20,000 people. Right. It doesn't seem like much, but you're right. That was probably a huge – that's a urban center for the, that period of time. And and small geographically too. Of course, New York was centered on the the southern tip of Manhattan going up only till what would be about City Hall Park today would be the northern mm-hmm. limit of the city. City Hall of course was down on Wall Street. Oh, that's right, right. City, right. city Hall was an area called the Commons. It was just sort of a grassy today's land. Today City Hall yeah, was today's a City Hall, yes. And the City Hall at the time was down on Wall Street. Right. And the government was actually sort of a hybrid. It was There was a royally appointed uh, leader, governor, and mayor type. There was a democracy. They elected minor officials. So it was a sort of mix. There was a state assembly that was elected by voters. And society was, you know, based on, well, the, the, there were upper classes who were landowners and merchants and lawyers and then a middle class. And then there was a very large lower class as well who did a lot should- of the work. But it was... A functional small town, small-ish sure. town with with good industry based on shipping, so, you know, small stores and small factories. But it would, it would have been a very interesting place to be. And the British had been in charge basically for 100 years by this particular time. Almost exactly 100 right. years at this, by this time. But it's hard to imagine a New York being so diverse and yet so small. It's kind so of amazing. compact, exactly. So, the, but the events of the world are weighing heavily here on New York City, and the British are under some tension. So, in 1763, 1764, the English were actually under a huge amount of debt. They had just battled the French and the Indians in the French and Indian War right. over here in North America, and so they had a debt of almost 150 million pounds, and they need they needed some ways to make money. So they sort of looked at the colonists and they said. You know what? You're benefiting primarily from all this defense that we're doing. So we're going to start charging you for it. You know, they passed all these different laws and these different acts throughout the colonies that basically taxed them. And of course, the colonists weren't taking the sitting down. No. And so what happened is the Stamp Act came along. That was in 1765. Basically, that meant that all public documents like wills and marriage certificates, playing cards even, needed this kind of stamp on playing them. Playing cards. Playing cards had to have the stamp, official, play, official playing cards of the British Empire. The colonists had no voice in British government. And so the fact that they had to sort of pay money for, these, for things to be official, you know, that they consider this to be a, a form of taxation. The colonists believed that they should have the same rights as Englishmen, New Yorkers led the, pro- the protests. As a matter of fact, the first Stamp Act 
Congress, which actually collected the reps of uh, nine different colonies, met in, the, in a building where Federal Hall is today, actually. This was to express their outrage and to pull, basically pull the colonists together into like one, one mindset. Meanwhile, outside on the streets, there was all this violence against those who were enforcing the Stamp Act. There were mobs that took to the streets. They were burning the homes of English office holders. The stamps themselves, which were kind of were sitting out in the harbor, were, you know, were just effectively destroyed, were burned. Because the stamps had come over in giant vessels and were just stuck out at sea in the harbor, stuck on the ships. Yes. Because nobody dared to bring them on. Well, of, well, of course not. It was, right. it was too, in, too much, too incensed. So even when this act was later appealed, it didn't matter. The, the spark of independence had already been lit. You know, there was a huge boycott of British goods. In New York, there was an, organiz- an underground organization. One could say a terrorist organization, if you're uh-huh. looking at it from one way, uh, called the Sons of Liberty. They also linked to groups in Boston and to other major cities. They often used violence in g- getting their point across, basically. Were and who le- were they? Well, it was uh, New Yorkers, rebels. It was led by this man named Al- Alexander McDougall. When the act was repealed, the Sons of Liberty hoisted up what they call a liberty pole up in the common grounds area. It was basically just a way to like send messages to others in their organization. And it was rather rebellious. So naturally, the British kept ripping it down and they kept putting it back up again and they kept being ripped down again. <laughs> Over the course of like 10 years... This unrest even spawned what is kind of almost considered one of the first battles of American independence uh, in 1770, and it's a battle called the Battle of Golden Hill, which was sounds like it's in this, some exotic place. It's literally on where John and William Street is today in downtown Financial District. Wow! It was a violent protest between British soldiers who were handing out these pro-British handbills, and so there was just fisticuffs happened, and some, there was some bloodshed. And this was in 1770. So this was one of the first... So this is still six years before the revolution and tempers are boiling. Right. But here we... I'm going to gloss over this really quickly because a lot of this happened outside of New York. Uh, Right. History buffs pour another drink. (laughs) The colonists unite, you know, first under the Articles of Association in 1774, New York being one of the colonists. Right. Of course. Of course. You know, by this time, the British troops were amassing and have already been fighting the barely newly formed Continental Army, which is being led by young George Washington. The Battle of Lexington and Concord, Massachusetts, and of course, the Battle of Bunker Hill, this year-long siege, which basically forced the British out of Boston. So the British fled to Halifax. Washington knew, though, that they were that the next target would be the next biggest port. That would be New York. Had I'm sorry, had war already been declared? What year are we in? Uh, no one actually hasn't officially been declared because so you. The, I'm, so Washington was the head of an American army even while there well, they wasn't were, a formal. They were going to they were going to war, but we didn't have our Declaration of Independence would come a little bit later. So Washington and his Continental Army already started to amass themselves in New York on April 13th of 1776. And getting recruits from all over the place, having all of these soldiers from every little colony, lots of poor men, boys who are coming to the town, a lot of them getting sick because it's the summertime and a lot of them are away from their families for the first time. So New York's a little bit chaotic at this point. Then, finally, Mm -hmm. we get to July the 4th, 1776. 
And the Declaration of Independence is, of course, penned in Philadelphia. Washington, a few days later, Washington triumphantly reads the Declaration of Independence to these newly grouped soldiers and to all these crowds who are just, you know, hankering for some action, I guess. In New York. In New York. And he, he reads it at the Commons, the same area that we, where the Liberty Pole had been. So the crowds get so enraged that they rush downtown to Bowling Green. And down there was a statue of King George on his horse. They get so enraged that they pull the statue down and they behead him. Oh. And then they turn some of the, some of the statue into bullets to be used in the war. Or is well, that so what they plan to do? So, so they they threaten to melt down the king for bullets to fight the king. July of 76. This is July of 1776 in the heart of independence time, but it's not quite so rosy because here come the British. Washington was right. The British indeed did, are coming. Just a few days later, the British do enter New York Harbor. They, they encamp on Tory-friendly, loyalist Staten Island um, with Newdorp being there where they camp out when they camp at first. Now, when you say, I'm sorry, loyalist-friendly Tory Oh, the territories. Well, so the Tories were friendly to the crown. Correct. The friendly to the crown, and then who the, we will also be calling the loyalists. Or, and then on the other side, we have the patriots or the rebels, depending right. on how you want. It. We'll look at. We'll and and their political party was the Whigs. So the ships come into New York Harbor. People are sitting on their roofs and they're just looking aghast in terror at these approaching ships. There were only about at this time what thirty thousand New Yorkers now in, in 1776. Right. There were you know double that amount of British troops and Hessians. These uh the big, the, the hired ge German soldiers, German mercenaries, right? Um, and just to sort of like tease and frighten the New Yorkers even more. And this is a little bit of foreshadowing. Two ships would sell up the Hudson on the Hudson side, not the East River side, and they would exchange fire with a, a couple forts, including Fort George, which would have a young 19-year-old King's College student by the name of Alexander Hamilton there mm -hmm. lighting some of the cannon fires. The British would easily go up the Hudson and back. And so this is a little bit of foreshadowing, and, and Washington has this in mind for later because they could be basically bottled in to Manhattan if they were to get to the top of the island and cut them off. And they'd be stuck. Yes. So on July 13th, uh, the Admiral Lord Howe, the leader of the British Army, sends a message to, quote, Mr. Washington. Mm -hmm. and Stripping you know, him of his title. Asking him for a meeting. The note is rejected. Since as July fourth, he is now General Washington. This rings a bell. <laughs> I've heard this. Some this was also perhaps Mr. Stuyvesant. Peter, Peter Stuyvesant did the very same thing to the British. Actually, I don't know whether he got this idea from them, but I I do find that an interesting. Maybe parallel. he heard our podcast. <laughs> He's like, oh, that sounds like a good idea, Peter. Thanks. So, but this happens two or three times. But they do finally, they do finally meet. He or he meets one of Howe's emissaries. But Washington casts such a domineering theatrical presence, like he becomes a leader of a newfound nation that the that the, that the British, you know, are trying to squash. And here's like a, a man that's going to be very hard to beat. Right. He's talking about change. He, he's changed. So, so he will not he will not back down. So that falls through the British attack. Now Washington ha splits his army. Half of them go over to the Brooklyn side. And half of them stay in New York. The British land in, on Graveson Bay in, in Brooklyn. 88 frigates of soldiers. I, I, excuse me? <laughs> Fri frigates? Frigates? Frigates of soldiers? <laughs> yes. I mean, a lot of soldiers. Of yeah. 
a lot, a lot of soldiers. Um, Brooklyn was b- basically chosen to be attacked first because it was very sparsely populated and a lot of loyalist sympathizers were over there. Washington sent the, the, the troops that he sent to Brooklyn. They manned various forts throughout Brooklyn that they ex- expect to come into contact with the British. This Fort Box and this Fort Green, this Fort Putnam. Unfortunately, there's one area that they just didn't guard very well. He sent five soldiers to sort of watch over and guard what was called the Jamaica Pass. Now, unfortunately, this is what the British choose to make their entry into Brooklyn towards so, bro- towards Brooklyn Heights, where a lot of his men are stationed at. So, so the American army had five soldiers. No, they, no, they had five soldiers who were up against the five British soldiers force. at Jamaica Pass. Correct, and they were, of course, like immediately captured. And so, by the way, that is to the Brooklyn Borough of East New York. Okay. You know where that is. They had no problem driving the Continental Army back, and uh, they suffered really huge losses. They were forced to cross Gowanus Creek, which back then was actually an, a nice creek and not a polluted, disgusting creek as it is today. On August 27th, the British took up a strategic military position in this place called the Vecht Farmhouse, where 2,000 of their soldiers blocked the the rebels retreat. Now I'm mentioning this because it's now referred to as the Old Stone House and you can it's a place that you can visit in Brooklyn. It's still it's still standing. A brave number of of rebel soldiers led by William Alexander actually took this house from the British twice in one day before eventually being taken prisoner. But because of this, most of Washington's army was able to cross Gowanus Creek in time. So Washington's army is getting pushed back through Brooklyn by the British force. Yes, and essentially. Th- and they're getting pushed back up to what? Uh, Brooklyn Heights. They're, they're in. They're in Brooklyn Heights, as a matter of fact. They're back and, up against the wall. And I mean, they don't have enough. You know, do they have enough time to escape? Well, luckily, they can't fight, can they? Well, so Washington decides that they cannot. That they all need to retreat to Manhattan. So on the night of August 29th, he evacuates all 9,000 soldiers that he has left back to Manhattan. And at night, using literally every conceivable floating device that they could possibly find, just shipping all these soldiers back and forth. That's really hard to do on the East River at With night. With 9,000 men. Quietly. Exactly. By, suns- by sunrise, they still didn't have everyone across. If they had been caught retreating, I mean, this would have been totally easy pickings for the British. Luckily, a thick fog had crawled in at that particular moment and basically covered the Americans, the rebels, if you will, until they were all safely back to Manhattan. Wow, fortuitous. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. 
But now here they are all in Manhattan. You have like hundreds of, of injured soldiers. The morale is really down because they've just retreated. Well, they've been pushed back, yeah. And so <laughs> I'm like a child. And then? Well, and then the Americans, rebel delegation, if you will, makes another attempt, um, a sort of a peace treaty. This one, I believe we mentioned this in our Staten Island podcast. Uh, John Adams, Ben Franklin, Ed- Edward Rutledge met General Howe in Staten Island to see if they could work something out. Oh, the Americans right, yeah. still refused to capitulate on the on the declaration. Howe refused to back down, so that didn't work. So the British were basically ready to like attack Manhattan. Washington, though, and something that may look like a little cowardice now, but he had to think about this army was the only thing standing between the British, and the making of a new America. He had to really preserve the army, even if he made some decisions that seemed, at the time, a little cowardly. So basically what he decided, he didn't want to be bottled in. He decides to completely abandon New York. Which would also be a choice to abandon the New Yorkers, because there were Americans who were living, you know, there were 30,000 people living in the city, and he was just basically throwing the city up into the air and saying, he wasn't, well, yeah. let's hope it lands on its feet. Well, I'm sure that they weren't happy with, with the, well, you know, I'm not sure if they were happy with leaving or maybe they were. Maybe it was like, well, if you, if you leave and they're not going to, you know, they won't bomb us. So on September 15th, the British do finally land in Manhattan. And where do they land? They land in Kipps Bay, uh-huh. which is um, on basically on 34th Street on the East River. What's where the heliport is now? If you know where all the helicopters land in Manhattan, but 34th and the East River. Yes, kind of behind Bellevue Hospital. That's where they. Yes, that's where they landed. They caught the back flank of Washington's evacuating army. They didn't catch the whole thing on on its way out. They only caught the back. The Americans at the back that were unprepared. They fled, leaving their supplies. 320 of them were captured as prisoners. Washington was even later later said he was ashamed of these fleeing soldiers. He called it scandalous and disgraceful. But here's the thing is that the British would have captured many more men, would have actually probably killed or captured at least half of his army if it wasn't for a charming middle-aged lady by the name of Mrs. Robert Murray. Now, you might be like, why is a, is a woman in the story of all these men fighting on battlefields? And now, who is this Mrs. Murray? She was the wife of an officer, a mother, and a Quaker. She, her home, which was in today's Murray Hill, her last name's Murray, uh-huh. you might see a connection there. She delayed William Howe and his colonels by inviting them up for tea and wine. So, because, you know, they were really exhausted, and here's a here's a, a, a kindly lady offering them, you know, tea and some rest for the colonels, for the men, you know, making the decisions. You know, the British, they cannot turn down a good cup of tea. Then they can't. And so this social tactic, they, they say, I like to believe this, even though I think it's a little bit urban legend, uh, this social tactic may have delayed the British enough so that a bulk of the Continental Army could actually escape. So, wait, how did she get their attention? She just like stuck her head out the window and said, "Boys, come up for tea." Well, she was a you know she was a a, a high cl- a woman of high class, and you know, she she had her methods. Women have their ways. <laughs> so Washington and the Continental Army go up to northern Manhattan to an area called Harlem Heights. This is the area that's sort of modern West Harlem and Columbia University, you know, Morningside Heights area. Sure. Um, that bluff, by the way, is so perfect for watching enemies advance. Washington's home base. And great also for watching drug deals, by the way. <laughs> oh, in the park? Yeah. No, you can see from that, from, you know, just, that's just an aside. <laughs> you can look out over well, the, the park. I Morningside didn't know, Heights. Yeah. I didn't know that detail. Um, Washington's home base was not i don't think he had that view from his window um was the mansion home of the colonel roger morris 
no, does his name sound familiar to you, Tom? Ah, the, the home Morris, of the, Ralph, the Morris we, Jumel. Well, it would be later be the home of Eliza Jumel, right? And we mentioned that she was haunting this house in our ghost podcast. It's a famous and one of the oldest houses in New York City. On September sixteenth, the finding commenced up there in Harlem Heights with another two thousand American soldiers against five thousand British soldiers at this particular time. Still outnumbered, the Continental Army were retreating slightly. Then the British make this what I would say almost hilarious strategic error. They start uh, blowing these foxhound horns. You know, like the, the when the British foxhound hunts, they blow these horns. But they had just brought them over? Well, they have them on their – as part of the regalia, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you have <laughs> – getting an email about this? Yes? So anyway, they take off their foxhorn. Well, some of them have foxhorns anyway, and so they start blowing them. The, the Continental Army hears them, and it's almost an insult, like, oh, you think you're just going to like chase us down like foxes now? You think this is going to be the end? So they almost wow. like regain their spirit and regain their confidence. And they, it, the Harlem Heights battle ends up almost being a draw with more British losses than losses on the rebels' side. Because the Continental Army was offended by a sort of unintentional metaphor? Well, it was, it was a mixture of actually I mean, these it. soldiers were deep. <laughs> It was a mixture of uh, uh, metaphors and then, you know, actually having like a good place to battle from. And, okay. you know, and maybe they might have even had some food in them. I don't know at this time. Unfortunately, the, the Connell Army does have to give up Manhattan Island. Just strategically, it makes sense. They head on into New Jersey and they have many more adventures, which we won't be talking about anymore since we're just sticking here in right. Manhattan. The, the Jersey Boys can actually tell that <laughs> yes, the in Jersey their story, right, in their podcast. But, so we've got the British basically taking over New York City yeah, in but, one fell swoop. Yeah, but they got some stuff that they've got to deal with down in New York while that's been going on. So then on September 21st, the Great Fire of 1776. That's right. A huge fire sweeps through New York. It was. It started at the Fighting Cox Tavern. There were no alarms, curiously, because most of them had been melted down for ammunitions. So uh. the fire spread very, very quickly. It eventually took almost four hundred. Almost took four hundred to five hundred buildings. A quarter, well, it took a quarter of the town, right? Yeah. A quarter of the ho- the homes too. A qu- so many. Bill, I mean, that must have looked so frightening, just on top of this battle already happening. Obviously, because the city was so compact and, and pushed down in the southern tip of Manhattan, when a fire like that spread, it was the Great Fire of 76, and it just took out a whole dense quarter mm-hmm. and left so many people homeless at a time when they were already stressed because there were so many people in need of they, housing. They just didn't need this happening. This it, was a bad time. And, of course, there were all kinds of conspiracy theories about who was responsible for this. Well, yes, they, they thought that the, it was a rebel plan, but uh, later Washington claims that it was not. In fact, Washington, according to the accounts I read, was telling his soldiers not to touch or harm any building on the way out. They didn't want this to be a sort of like, you know, raise it to the ground on the way out of town ordeal because they were going to be hopefully coming back soon to New York, which was their pride. But they did. The British did interrogate almost 200 people. They shot a lot of people just on suspicion. Then while this was going on, they ended up capturing a young spy by the name of, and this one will 
tickle your ears if you're a uh-huh. if history buff. Nathan Hale. He was apprehended in Flushing Bay, Queens, actually, at a tavern. And he was brought back. He was accused of being a spy, and he was hung on September 22nd. But if not before, of course, he gave his famous line that all of history now records, I only regret that I have but one life to lose for my country. You know, his story has entered the fabric of American tales and American independence. Wow, I didn't realize that that happened. I had never placed it into the American Revolution in New York like that. And it was, yeah, I mean, he was he was killed here in Manhattan. So New York then became the British military operation base. And for, I guess, the next several years, it's the center of loyalist British life. Okay, Greg, I think I've been following the whole story correctly. Washington's army has been pushed out of town. The British are here. They've taken over New York City. And basically, we have a chaotic situation now in which New Yorkers have to make a choice whether to stay or to go. If they stay, they have to pledge allegiance to the king. If they go, well, where do they go? And, you know, the general mood is, well, Washington kind of just got his butt kicked. The army is a weak, frail army. They're about to see some real hard times in New Jersey. It's 1776, and a war that would go on for another seven years has really just begun. You know, American independence is on the edge of a knife, as they say. And the British have really shown their dominance here. And they sit here in New York, and they, they, it's now theirs. In fact, right. New York would function then for the next seven years throughout the course of the Revolutionary War, really as the central point of command for the British. So, I mean, what would life be like then for the next six or seven years? What would, I mean, how would it be to be a citizen of New York City? What would you have to be going through? What would you have to put up with? Well, I'm glad you asked. And... Dear listener, that is the subject of next week's podcast because, well, this is a two-parter in which we're telling the entire story of the Revolutionary War from the perspective of New York City. Today, we got to look at the war and how New York switched hands. The invasion. The invasion. And next week, we will be talking about what it was like to live as a New Yorker inside, basically, the fortress, the British fortress that was New York for seven years. And all I have to say is this. If you thought New York was bad in the 1970s, just wait till you look at New York in the late 1770s. You know, it, it was no walk in the Central Park. It was a rough city. And th- there were rough times. There was cold. There was famine. And th- there were also a lot of soldiers and a lot of empty and burned houses. So (laughs) all those details we'll have for you next week. Until then, I hope that you will visit our blog at BoweryBoysPodcast.com. Hopefully you've also, wherever you download this from, any podcast provider, but if you download from iTunes, if you like what we do, go to iTunes and write up a little review. That would be wonderful. And we do appreciate those. And we also love it if you happen to be on Facebook, if you'll swing on by, type in Bowery Boys into Facebook and you'll be able to see our profile and join the page and it's fun because we can all see each other and we have pictures that i don't have available on the podcast and all sorts of fun fun stuff right plus we can do little contests and fun things like that so next week we will be coming back to this era of new york city we have a lot of interesting stuff to surprise you with so tune on in it was very nice to have you with us this week have a great new york week whether you live here or not see you next week
Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts.